Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are tackling another Poirot. This time, it is Evil Under the Sun. This is an important Christie to some people. But we should take a moment to mention something that will also be important to many of our listeners, which is that we have a special episode coming up. Normally, we wait till the end of our podcast to tell you what we're doing next, but we wanted to make sure everyone was aware that we will be speaking with none other than Sophie Hanna who, in addition to being a best-selling author of numerous mystery and thriller titles, is the author the Christie estate chose to expand the Poirot-verse with three novels thus far featuring our favorite Belgian detective. And while we won't be covering those novels on this podcast, since they, of course, weren't written by Christie herself, we're obviously intrigued by them and the process that brought them to life, and we've been looking forward to speaking with Sophie for quite some time. So we're thrilled she agreed to join us for a phone call conversation, which we'll be featuring as a special episode in the weeks to come. Okay, so Evil Under the Sun was first published in June 1941 by our friends at Collins Crime Club and in the U.S. in October of the same year. Though I would like to note, per our friend John Curran, that apparently was written as early as 1938. This was still around the time where she was banking these things, so she was writing multiple ones per year, and then they weren't necessarily coming out immediately after she wrote them. So that's fairly significant. I think it was at the end of 1938, but still, that's a good two-plus years before it actually came out, which is kind of interesting. Interestingly enough, also, is that it's lacking... I mean, we even saw it, obviously, in One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. There was some sense of the era, right? There was some sense of the war. Yeah. And there's really no sense here. It's interesting because we had said that Sad Cypress was the last novel to be written before the start of World War II. And One, Two, Buckle My Shoe feels very much suffused with the war. But 1938 is before the start of the war in England. So it seems to be the case that Evil Under the Sun was, in fact, the last novel uh, written before the war, in which case perhaps it was actually written before One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, even though it was then published after. And in that Christie wrote so fast and furiously, I would imagine that we would occasionally run across a situation like this where the order in which they had been written as opposed to the order in which they were published was different. But I do not have a definitive answer on that. So that is perhaps something that we could ask a Christie expert in an interview episode to come. Or if any listener out there has any light to shed on the matter, we would love to hear from you because we are a little confused as to the chronology in this case. Catherine, tell us about the victim of this novel. Her name is Arlena Stewart Marshall, and she is a former actress and kind of like a femme fatale, like a tabloid fixture, ruining other people's romantic entanglements. She's apparently just like that attractive. And she has this tabloid reputation as a huge gold digger. She is found strangled to death in Pixie Cove. 
So let's talk about our suspects. And this is interesting because we're used to saying it's everyone because we're in an Agatha Christie closed circle mystery. And we are in an Agatha Christie closed circle puzzle mystery. We're on an island here, a literal island. Yeah. But everyone is not a suspect. And it's really interesting and not not something we come across often in Christie. But a bunch of people at this resort are really never truly suspects. Yeah. I mean, some of them like actually get a lot of page time. (laughs) They certainly do. And it's like, well, except clearly you're not a suspect and clearly also you don't matter to the plot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In one case, there's a clear sort of comic relief thing going on. But the best example of that is in Murder on the Orient Express, when we think that Mrs. Hubbard, right, the sort Mm -hmm. of comedic relief older American woman, I mean, she turns out obviously to be central to everything, which is why it's that's such a brilliant twist. But there's no twist here. There really are superfluous characters in this story. Yeah, it's a very straightforward story that ends up padded out. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about some of our for real suspects first, and then we'll get to those superfluous characters. First up, we've got Captain Kenneth Marshall, who is Arlena's husband, and very much aware of the fact that she is probably not exactly being faithful, but he doesn't believe in divorce, so he is sticking by her. We come to Linda Marshall, um, who is Arlena's stepdaughter, who hates her with the passion of a thousand sons slash the passion of angsty teenage girls everywhere. You know, oh she's boy, a de- yeah. She's a dead mother, and she has this overly glamorous, kind of seemingly gold digger as a stepmother, and she just seems miserable. At one point late in the novel, Poirot says of Linda, she is at the age when one is prone to be mentally unbalanced. <laughs> like, I mean, Christy was laying it on a little thick with this character in terms of, you know, like, oh, she's a teenager. She's crazy. I was like, uh, okay. Yeah, like, she's, and we get like a lot of her perspective, which is unusual. Yes, we do. We get a lot from Linda's perspective. But she is certainly a suspect because, again, teens be crazy. You never know. So. You never know what's going on in their little noggins. Next up, we've got Rosamond Darnley, who is a single wealthy designer of high-end women's fashion and the childhood friend slash love interest of Kenneth Marshall. In fact, we can tell that she has always held a flame for him and that the feeling is probably mutual and that they probably would be a much better match than Kenneth Marshall has made with Arlena. Well, and we also have a weird bias written into this because we find out very early on that Poirot is smitten with her. He really is. And I would argue we've come across this character before. Do you remember in Lord Edgeware Dies, there was that character of the single fashion designer who was a friend of Carlotta Adams's Mm -hmm. and she was a great, she was a very minor character, but she really was drawn in a very lively, engaging way by Christy. And I think Christy just likes these successful professional women, perhaps because she was one herself, but I don't think she's really identifying with them because they're always single, but we've come across this charming kind of sophisticated female fashion designer (laughs) character before. And yeah, Poirot liked that character too. I don't remember what her name is, but he's almost in love with her. He's like smelling her perfume. He's, he's besotted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The perfume things, he can't get enough of like talking to her. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Then we have um, Patrick Redfern, who is uh, a handsome, young, married man who Arlena is swanning over blatantly. Lean, bronzed, with broad shoulders and narrow thighs. Yes, that's right. She does describe his thighs. Yes. Well, also, we learn <laughs> repeatedly, like, what a good swimmer he is and how impressed everybody is by his swimming. I'm kind of imagining the famous shot of Daniel Craig coming out of the water in the first Bond that he yeah. did in the skimpy blue bathing suit. Right. That's what I imagine is like the sort of tracking shot with Patrick Redfern at the Jolly Roger, at the Jolly Roger. <laughs> on, on this island. island. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then next up we have Christine Redfern, who is Patrick's paler, plainer, and more soft-spoken wife, who is not an idiot and very much notices the attention going on between Patrick and Arlena. Right. And then we have an entire list of the coulda done it. We can just go through them because they're mm-hmm. all interviewed. But, I mean, we have Miss Emily Brewster, a super athletic spinster lady who finds the body. Right. And I think she is technically related to... There's a man who became so besotted with Arlena that he gave away all of his money to her when he died. Right. Right. And she has a cousin who was essentially disinherited because of that. But, like, that's it. As weak as that sounds, it never gets more involved than that. And she's never really mm-hmm. treated as a, as a mm-hmm. true suspect. Then we have Mr. Horace Blatt who is rich and obnoxious, as his name would indicate, and a little bit lascivious in a gross way. He's I imagine him just being like really sweaty and getting too close to you when he speaks. Absolutely. He is yeah. just like, like everybody avoids him. Everybody on this island has been avoiding him. He ends up being embroiled in this very, very secondary side plot having to do with drug dealing. Yeah, I know. Which is like, why is this even in here? And it, and it's never even resolved. Like, that's yeah. how that's how secondary it is. It's never actually resolved that Horace Blatt, in fact, was the one who was providing drugs on the island, which they find in this box in a cave. But there is like sort of like a throwaway line or two about, well, maybe Arlena was killed because she found those drugs and then the drug dealers killed her. Right. It's as weak as with Miss Brewster. It's really weird. Correct. And then we have Major Barry, who is another person who everybody's been avoiding because he's a giant blowhard. And all he likes to talk about is his time in India. He's the Anglo-Indian colonel character that we see in so many Christie novels, who is almost never significant except when he is, such as when he's the murderer. Then we have Reverend Stephen Lane. He's probably the realist potential suspect out of all of these not true suspects because, because there's he a, seems like a fanatic he says like there's a lot of ink spilled about his um fanaticism as to evil women and he thinks arlena is just this evil jezebel we're supposed to think that maybe he's just crazy and he strangled her in a fit of religious passion and fury but again it just doesn't really go anywhere yeah and then we have carrie and odell gardner they're you know Gross Americans, because of course they are. (laughs) And there is, there's zero. They're just not suspects. Like I, we're listing them just because might as well, because they are a presence in this. A big presence. Like they're, they get a lot of lines. They're kind of like the Miss Bates character in Emma, like long passages that are kind of funny, but also truly tedious. Yes. Let's just say they didn't do it. (laughs) They didn't, they didn't do it. 
All right. Well, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. As you can tell, this is a Poirot on vacation novel, Mm -hmm. and he is spending his holiday at an island resort in Devon, which does seem like a slightly odd choice for him, especially because he spends the whole first couple of pages talking about how much he hates the notion of people just lying out on a beach scantily clad and just bodies on a butcher block and, you know, how disgusting it is. And it's like, well, why are you here exactly, Poirot? (laughs) Like, what? This doesn't really seem to be your cup of syrup, so to speak. Every but, time okay. that we see Poirot take a holiday, it's a little bit like, why? You clearly hate this. He's either on a boat, so he has mal de mer, yeah. or he's at a resort that he hates. Or he's like in Egypt where it's hot. And he's sweating. It's true. So we open on this resort. This is, by the way, based on an actual island where there's an actual resort. So it's Berg Island off of Devon is the real life island. And uh, we're introduced to the litany of characters that we just went through. Am I the only one who was sort of wondering where this island was in connection to Soldier Island? (laughs) And the funny thing (laughs) is that Berg Island off of Devon was also the inspiration for Soldier Island. It's just that she made Soldier Island obviously not a tidal island. You could never reach it. She put it further out to sea, whereas this one functions exactly the same way Berg Island does in terms of being a tidal island. And we don't have to imagine what it actually looks like because that is the island where they actually filmed the Suchet adaptation. All right. So Arlena Stewart Marshall is the fly in the Chardonnay. (laughs) She's blatantly hated by all of the other guests. Nobody likes this woman to the point where people are openly saying terrible things about her. And it's a little bit surprising because it's like a small group of people and they're just openly trash-talking this woman. She seems to have eyes for the much younger and certainly not rich Patrick Redfern. And it seems like everybody at this resort sees what's going on. Including, as we mentioned, Patrick's wife, Christine. So one morning, Arlena gets up unusually early to go off in a rowboat. And she sees Poirot, who helps her launch the boat into the water, thereby ruining his perfect white suede shoes, Kel Dimage. But she asks that he not tell anyone that he saw her, or even to say like what direction she was going in, because she just wants to be left alone. She gets her Greta Garbo on. I just want to be alone. And Poirot, uh, chivalrous gent that he is, does comply with that request. Yeah, he he surprisingly does, actually. He's chivalrous. A lady made a request of him, and he followed through on it. Right. So, basically, in short order, both her husband and Patrick Redfern are caught looking for her. Poirot witnesses all of this. Shortly thereafter, Patrick meets up with Emily Brewster, and they decide that they're going to circumnavigate the island together in a rowboat. And so, when they get near to Pixie Cove and Pixie Cove is an isolated spot and they see what they think is Arlena's sunbathing. She's lying, you know, face down with her sun hat and swimsuit on. Um, but as they pull closer, they realize that something is off. She doesn't respond when they call it her name. And then when they get close, it is very clear that her arms are at unnatural angles as though she's been thrown onto the beach is how Christy describes it. They pull the boat up. Patrick checks her pulse and tells Emily she's dead. Emily, we get a little bit of her perspective and she's like quickly volunteers to go get the police because she doesn't want to be near the body. 
Pixie Cove is accessible only by water or by a ladder that goes up a cliffside to the surface of the island. And when Emily Brewster leaves to go get help, she does not take the ladder because she, in fact, has a fear of heights. Although it's not entirely clear if and how Patrick would know about that. But in any case, she leaves by boat and Patrick is left on the beach. So enter the police, Inspector Colgate and the local medical examiner. They determine when they inspect the body that Arlena was strangled, clearly by a man, given the size of the bruising. The medical examiner puts the time of death between 10.45 and 11.40, given the fact that the body was found shortly thereafter and had only been very recently killed. So Colgate immediately recognizes Poro, but of course, and recruits him instantly to help solve the case. We also have the chief constable playing a role here, whose name is Colonel Weston, and who was actually a crossover character from Peril at End House. That case is referenced when Poirot says to Weston, ah, yes, many years have passed since that affair at St. Lou. And Weston even references that seance that Poirot concocted at the end of that story. Clearly, he hasn't gotten over it or how insane it was. We'll never forget it either, Colonel Weston. Poirot quickly gives a rundown of the various hotel guests and their relationships. And the most likely suspects are, of course, the husband and the wife, so to speak, (laughs) Captain Marshall, Arlena's husband, since it appears that he was being cuckolded, and Christine Redfern, Patrick's wife, who is also very clearly being cheated on. But in reality, we know, and Poirot knows, that there's also Linda Marshall, who really hated her stepmother, and Rosamond Darnley, who's still very much in love with Captain Marshall. But there is a universal problem because everyone, and I mean everyone on this island, has an alibi. Yeah, every single person has an alibi. Captain Marshall was at breakfast at the hotel with the other guests. Linda and Christine had gone to a spot to draw and read. Patrick and Emily Brewster were obviously boating together when they found the body, etc., etc. So here's the conundrum, because it would seem like it would have to be a rando that murdered Arlena under this isolated, little-known beach while somehow, A, not being seen, and B, having done so within a very small time frame. And that is really where we are left until we go through our clues here and uncover the world as it actually is. For a novel... This is pretty straightforward here, especially, I think, given the fact that we have read the novels and short stories that we have to this point. There's nothing that's going on here that we haven't seen before, which is not even necessarily a criticism because it's all done very neatly and satisfyingly here. Yeah, it is. But there's nothing new. (laughs) No, it is every every single thing that we're going to point to. Longtime listeners will know that we feel like we just say some of these things every week because because we do yeah because we do (laughs) and I mean I think this is really funny you know we just talked about the affair at the victory ball and man do we have some similarities there too we certainly do. Well, let's start with our clue number one, because uh, it's seeming to be the case that our clue number one has to be actors. <laughs> that's just, that's going to be our go-to of clue number one. To be fair, it's functioning very differently here. No, because, it is, that's a, it's misleading to say that. Yeah, it's, it's really costuming. Clue number one really has to do with costuming. Not the fact that Arlena is an actor, but a careful and astute reader will note that Emily Brewster doesn't actually ever see Arlena's face when they come across 
across the body. Or even broader than that, I think an astute reader will have some sort of red flags raised when she realizes that, hey, wait a second, the face of the corpse is covered by her hat. That's weird. So we have one of these faces, Is either if it's through a mask or bad lighting or a hat, that generally indicates in Christy that something is up. Our deduction, even if we don't know exactly how to make the leap, the leap that we should probably make as super astute readers is that the body is in Orlena's that Emily Brewster and Patrick Redfern come across since the face is covered at that point. The other thing that we should note, because Christy really digs down on this, how tan Arlena is. Yeah. It's why it's noticeably her. And there's another deduction that we can make from that. There's another character whose skin color is repeatedly mentioned as the opposite of Arlena because she's extremely, extremely pale. And so if we're really thinking this through... We might think, oh, well, interesting that there are only two characters of this whose level of tan is brought up on basically every time they're mentioned. Yeah, so Arlena for being super tan and Christine Redfern for being super pale. So perhaps we could make the extra, extra leap there that, well, if it's not Arlena's body, maybe it's actually Christine Redfern posing as Arlena because it's much easier to go from pale to tan than in the other direction. Yeah, of course. You sprayed my front twice. You never turned? No, I barely even got to three Mississippi. Mississippi? I said count to five. (laughs) Mississippi, Leslie? There's definitely spray tan hijinks in uh, Absolutely Fabulous, too. Yeah. And lots of shows. Then very much related to this, we actually have this clue number two, which is a very clever clue because this is one of these Christie clues that once it's explained to us, we're like, oh, of course. How, you know, it has that air of inevitability. How could I not have seen this for what it was? But there's a lot made of this bottle someone throws out of the hotel, out of a window in the hotel. I think it almost hits Miss Brewster and she's like, oh, I almost died. And it just makes no sense in Poirot really fixates on it. Again, if we're being a super astute reader and cluing in on a potential body switcheroo happening and the level of one's tan being important, tanners come in bottles. That may link up with uh, our clue number one there. Yeah, just might. Get us a little further along. Just might. And then also linked to that is clue number three, which is that the uh, maids in the hotel hear someone running a bath around noon, which is a very odd time to run a bath. Mm-hmm. Unless you were slathered in a huge amount of dark makeup and had to take it off. <laughs> so, you know, there's a very clear deduction. Whoever threw out that bottle of makeup was taking the makeup off around noon. The weird thing is that no one is admitting to the bath. They know a bath happened, but no one will say it. And it's super right. weird and confusing. Yeah. This too, like I knew who did it. I remembered it as I was reading and I still didn't really figure out those two clues on my own as I was rereading this. I'm embarrassed to say. I mean, fair enough. But we really have a major, major, major clue here. And this is so classic Christy and something we've seen time and again. And that is timeline, my friends. And we have such specificity here as to when this murder happened and how the sequence of events took place down to the minute. So we should know as astute readers that when Christy gets insanely specific about time so that we should keep an eye out because something will inevitably be wrong, especially when everyone seems to have an alibi within the given time frame. We know that 
the body was in no way killed before 1045 at the earliest because Poirot saw Arlena leave the beach himself at that time. We can always trust Poirot's observations. Those are... Well, right. She left before then, but it would have taken her, you know, how long? At least a couple of minutes, right. Like she couldn't, she just, she couldn't, it's not physically possible for her to have been murdered before 1045. The end time frame 1140 is only the case because that's when Patrick and Emily found the body at 1145. And clearly there would have to be time for the killer to get away or to hide or something. And that's the block of time in which everyone seems to have the alibi. So the deduction here is that the time of death is wrong and it can only be wrong. This is what's really interesting actually about this book because this is unusual. And this is actually something that John Goddard, another shout out to that book that we've been enjoying, Agatha Christie's Golden Age, an analysis of Poirot's Golden Age puzzles, made the point that Christie does often shift timelines as part of the solution to her puzzle mysteries. But usually it's that the murder happened earlier. Right. Than so this is what this is what we found in one, two, buckle my shoe. It's not only one, two, buckle my shoe. So in five previous Poirots, the murder happened before it seemed to have happened. This is also something we're getting from John Goddard's book. And those five titles are The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, The Mystery of the Blue Train, Appointment with Death, Hercule Poirot's Christmas, and of course, one, two, buckle my shoe. The only one in which a murder happened later than it seemed to was technically Murder on the Orient Express, but it honestly doesn't even matter all that much. Like the timing of the murder in that one is not all that important. It's tricky because it means that Arlena was not dead when everyone thought she was dead. Right. But yes, our deduction here should be that the murder probably happened later than it seemed to. And once we get to that point, we get very far towards solving this. As we've said, this is a weirdly relatively straightforward novel. There's actually a really helpful short story to reference for this puzzle mystery, which surprisingly is a Miss Marple. It's a Christmas tragedy. That was the one where a man murders his wife by substituting what we think is her corpse with a dead maid, you know, in his hotel room. But it is exactly the same thing here because what he does is substitutes this corpse for his wife's body. drags it through the window. Puts a hat (laughs) over it. Miss Marple and this other old lady see it, think that it's his wife, and then they go back down and then... After that, (laughs) he murders his wife and puts her in the same position so that the timing is off and it can be later. That is exactly the same thing that happens here. It's the same puzzle. Totally. Well, except I will say in that short story, he had to like redress the corpses and drag them through the windows. (laughs) Right. This one, the only difference is that there's no weekend at Bernie's (laughs) hijinks going on here because the corpse is a live person, is a (laughs) co-conspirator. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, that Miss Marple's story is way more weekend at Bernie's. Here's the thing. Arlena clearly went off to have a rendezvous with someone, and that someone is pretty clearly Patrick from the get-go. The fact that he's seen on the beach earlier doesn't really matter because he's the one who knows about Pixie Cove and the secret caves. We know all of this from like the beginning of the novel. 
So this is how it works. This is how the timeline actually happened. Patrick was, of course, having this dalliance with Arlena, and we find out that she had her own finances from a former love interest who left her 50,000 pounds. This is the man who technically disinherited a distant relative of Miss Brewster's. Right. And that made Arlena an independently wealthy woman. It was 50,000 pounds that she inherited from that man. That money, though, has been siphoned off a little by little by Patrick with the full knowledge of his wife, Christine. So all of Christine's mousy moping is an act. They are totally, totally in on this together. They are scamming Arlena, who in this case is not a gold digger, but actually the victim. And not even just in this case. I mean, I think there's only one element of this novel that is brilliant in and of itself and that doesn't appear in any other Christie. And it's this. It's the the way, the lens through which we are told we should be viewing Arlena is hussy, gentle. Jezebel, gold digger, predator. In fact, it's the opposite. She's a victim. And what's brilliant about it is that, to me, it rings true. I've certainly met people who fall into that sort of character type where they put on a big show... And they want everyone to think that they are the center of attention and you should really envy them. But in fact, they're a shell of a person and they're super weak and pathetic. Right. <laughs> and no. like that is a that is a believable character. The fact that Arlena is not thinly drawn, but shadily drawn by Christy is quite purposeful. And I think ultimately she is a really effective character and a very unusual murder victim for Christy because she usually has a lot more sympathy for her victims. She, she clearly doesn't have a lot of sympathy for Elena, but the switch that happens there, the twist is a purely a character twist, but to me it rings true. And I actually think it's beautifully done and it's effective for the puzzle mystery and also just satisfying from a character standpoint. And when Christy pulls that off is when she's often at her best. So not everything else is working at its Christy superlative best in this novel, but that is. And I think it's really well done and really interesting. I love it. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I think it's also interesting. Arlene is a little bit of a Blake canvas and that's how we are getting the perspectives of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Their, their hatred projected on her. Yep. It's a good twist. So Christine, with her seeming sadness, obviously she's part of this plot. She befriends Linda, who is lonely and depressed and hates her stepmother. Linda also bought a voodoo book and candles in order <laughs> to curse her stepmother. Because of course she of her, did. She's a, yeah, a mopey teenager. So Christine is aware of this. Increasingly, then, Linda believes that her curse actually killed Arlena. And so conveniently, then, Christine also provides the pills that Linda takes in a suicide attempt. It takes up a lot of page space, like Linda's like mm-hmm. internal turmoil. Yeah. There's a lot of Linda in the novel that I think ends up being surprising to most people who know Evil Under the Sun, either from its film versions or just like haven't read it in a while. I was, I was surprised by how much Linda there was in this novel. A lot of Linda. It's a lot of Linda. Like, like yeah. you get her trips to the book bookstore. You get her counting out change. I mean, you just get like a lot of Linda. We get like a, lit, a list of the books that she reads, including a, yes. uh, a John Dixon car and Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, the other thing, obviously, that Linda provides for Christine is this trick timeline, the fake timeline, because what Christine does is that she changes Linda's watch and makes it 20 minutes later than it actually is. So she's using Linda here to establish this false alibi. Christine specifically asks Linda what time it is while they're out sketching slash swimming, knowing that Linda will say 11.45 when it's actually 11.25. Then Linda goes back out to swim, leaving her watch on the shore, and Christine changes the watch back to the correct time before hurrying up the cliff path, running across the narrow neck of land to the top of the ladder at Pixie Cove, stripping off the loose clothing that she wore for sketching, having put on the bathing suit that looks like Arlena's and applied that artificial suntan already back at the hotel and just covering it up with that loose outfit. Then Christine rushes down the ladder to Pixie Cove. It's a little bit of a weakness within the puzzle mystery, quite honestly, because A, it's convenient that Linda never realizes the fact that her watch hasn't been changed by 20 minutes and then changed back. And B, it's weird that she doesn't think that the time is off when she gets back to the hotel and it's actually a lot earlier Earlier. than she would have thought based on having told Christine it was 11.45 when it was actually 11.25, especially considering her watch was changed back to the correct time immediately after Christine made her look at it. Like... Wouldn't she have come back from her swim and thought it was strange that so little time had passed? Or if her swim happened to be less than 20 minutes, wouldn't it be weird that time had gone in reverse? Christy is careful to point out that Christine's true alibi, so to speak, is the fact that her hands are too small to have strangled Orlena. So this time-shifting business with the watch is a secondary measure. It's convincingly yeah. done. It's just when it's one of those things when you think about it, you're like, that's convenient that that worked out as well as it did for Christine. The other critique here is that the timeline is real fast. Everything had to work perfectly. Perfectly. For this thing Correct. too. Yeah. And I, I will say, I will say this too. There are a lot of people who I think quite rightly compare Evil Under the Sun to Death on the Nile. Part of it is that they're both Ustinov <laughs> glossy film yeah. adaptations, but they both feature a love triangle that is functioning in very much the same way. It's just that the marriage happens to be on different sides of the triangle. They both feature an original male-female couple where the man seems to have switched his allegiance to the other woman, but then in fact he didn't because he was conspiring all along with the original woman to kill the other woman. I mean, that is the same plot that we have going on here. Although, to be fair to Christie's of, love triangles featuring a pair of romantically entangled co-conspirators murdering the third point of that triangle feature in other novels as well, including two we've already covered, The Mysterious Affair at Styles and The Murder at the Vicarage. Also, there are a lot of surface similarities between this love triangle and Evil Under the Sun, and the one in the Poirot short story Triangle at Rhodes, which wasn't written too many years before this one. And interestingly, the murder plot and the murderer in that one are ultimately different, even with those surface similarities. So we'll be covering that short story soon to do a little compare and contrast. So it's not like Christie was just rehashing Death on the Nile when she wrote Evil Under the Sun. Add to that the whole character twist we get vis-a-vis Arlena as natural prey rather than natural predator, which does not have its analog in Lynette Ridgway by any means. And there's really an argument to be made that Evil Under the Sun is functioning at a higher level than Death on the Nile. However, on Death on the Nile, at least things get messy and messed up. And it was actually a friend of the podcast who was writing to us about this, so I don't want to take credit for this idea. But I think it's worth noting that in Death on the Nile, they also had to do everything very quickly, and it was crazily complicated, but they messed up. 
because people saw them right. do it. And then they had to murder two more people. And that's ultimately right. what got them caught. That's believable. Here, they had another crazy convoluted murder plot and they pulled it off and it was perfect. And the only reason that they got caught is because Poirot is Poirot. So it is a little hard to swallow. Yeah. The timing of Christine running all over the place. There's also this whole kind of side plot where Christine claims to not be a very vigorous, active person and to be afraid of heights. And then Poirot invites them all on a picnic and they go yeah. over they go over the water on this like narrow bridge and Miss Brewster is the only one, the athletic Miss Brewster is the only one who can't do it, but we're told that everyone else crosses it with no problem, which means Christine must have. And then at the end, right. Poirot is like, well, that means you were lying about having a fear of heights because you never would have been able to do right. that. So it's like, she had to be like a crazily good athlete to pull all this off. But even more than that, the thing that I have a problem with is because the murder happened later than we think it did, that means that when Christine was posing as Arlena on the beach, Arlena was hiding because Patrick told her to hide if anyone came before well, he got especially there. especially if Christine came. Especially if Christine came, but it's like, what if when Patrick was approaching the body and he calls out to the body, Arlena was like, wait, what's happening? And she just like came right. out and was like, oh, oh, sorry, Patrick. Like, it could have gone wrong. It's one of those cases where you're like, wow, they really got lucky that everything happened the way it did. Again, this is a quibble that we could have in almost every puzzle mystery, no, but still. No, you're right. You're right. You know, I felt better about it when I was reading it, but now that we're actually talking it out. Yeah, it's a lot. I still think that it does better than for example, the ridiculousness of murder in Mesopotamia, right? It's functioning on a more believable level than that, even though it's very tricky to pull off. Right. No, that makes sense. I guess just to finish off how this happens here, Christine goes down to Pixie Cove where Arlena has been waiting around for Patrick. When Christine comes, Arlena goes and hides in this cave, Pixie Cave within Pixie Cove. Christine lies down. She's tanned face down with the hat over her head so that Emily thinks that that's Arlena. Patrick, of course, knows that it's Christine. Then Emily rows away. Christine gets up. She runs back to the hotel where she has to take that mysterious noontime bath and also throws out the bottle of suntan lotion. Then Patrick goes into the cave where Elena has been hiding and strangles her. And Poirot ultimately figures this out through, it almost feels like a cheat. I mean, it makes total sense. It's how you would actually do something. But he basically asks the police for reports of similar strangulation deaths. Yeah. And he's pointed to one from several years previously in which a woman named Alice Corrigan was found dead in Surrey. Her body was discovered by a local school teacher. We know that Christine was a school teacher from gossip that we received pretty early on um, when people were feeling really sorry for her. And that school teacher's husband, Edward, had maybe been a suspect in the death, but he also has an alibi. So essentially, that's like an unsolved strangulation that bears exactly the same marks as this one. Pun not intended, but... <laughs> and there's a bit of a misdirect because the Reverend Lane was uh, right. practicing nearby that where right. that case happened. So we think, oh, is he really a religious fanatic? And he was right he's a serial killer but no it's just that Poirot just figures out that the dynamics of that case were identical to what he suspects is going on here in 
terms of the altered timeline. And once he makes that link, he easily gets a picture of Patrick (laughs) identified as Edward in this other, (laughs) in this other case. They're con artists. They're con artists. So they were doing the same thing to that poor woman. They were bilking her for her money and they were doing this with Arlena as well. The thing that I'm not clear on, and for me, this is also a weakness within the plot mechanics here, is why now? Because we're specifically told that Arlena has 15,000 pounds of the 50,000 pounds left that she had given to her by that man who died. The idea is that eventually Kenneth, her husband, would have found out what Patrick was doing, right? Right, yes. And gotten mad and exposed him for being a swindler and the jig was going to be up. But was that about to happen? There's no sort of why exactly now this had to happen. Like, it's never answered. there's There's a lot of extra stuff about the financial letters and bills that Arlena had been writing in the hotel. Well, because she had other men who were also trying to get money out of her. Yeah. And I mean, it it does seem a little bit like maybe everything has come to a head um, with her husband because, you know, it is mentioned when he's talking to Rosamond, they are talking about the fact that something is wrong. It's just that something seems to have been wrong for a while. (laughs) Right. I just, it's never, it's never fully answered like why it has to happen now. Why now? Especially given, it just seems like such an easy fix would have been, we'll just make it that zero of the 50,000 pounds is left. So it's over and they never want to get caught. So they're going to dispose of her the way that they did this other poor woman. Because they've gotten right. all the money they could out of her, but there was a good chunk of the money left. Yeah, no, that's It's just true. odd. It's, it's an true. odd choice. In any case, there's still a little room left in this story for a button of romance. Mm-hmm. Of course there is. Of course there is, because Papa Poirot steps in and rekindles the flames between Captain Marshall and the lovely designer Rosamond. He cares for Rosamond, as we know, and he wants her to be happy, and he wants poor Linda to have a nice stepmother for once. And we kind of get a happy ending, and I am actually going to make a case for just one deduction for Stuck in Its Time, and it is an unusual one because we have nary a xenophobic nor anti-Semitic point in this novel happily. There's nothing. No, but what you're talking about Rosamund giving up her career to become a wife in the country. Here's the thing. If this had been done in the course of the novel, it's kind of my peril at Endhouse issue where it's the final note of the story. And we've just been told so many times that Rosamond is this extraordinary businesswoman and she's so good at what she does. And Poirot admires her and Kenneth Marshall admires what she's done with her life. And we get this thing at the end. This is the last line of the novel. Rosamond said softly, oh, my dear, I've wanted to live in the country with you all my life. Now it's going to come true. Well, she says it to Poirot very early on, though. I know. I just, I found it a little distasteful. Yeah, it's a little gross. I think that her point to Poirot earlier is that she's done everything that she's wanted to do. And she's been a success, et cetera. And, like, she really doesn't want to be alone. Right. No, I know. And we also know that Christy valued being a wife and mother above being an author. I mean, she made right. no she made no bones about that. She was a Victorian woman. She was born in 1890. She came of age in the Victorian era. Like she was not a modern day feminist by any means. Hence the stuck in his time issue. <laughs> like it's just it. Yeah. You, she usually finesses it a little bit more than that. Um. So it's not so much of an issue, but it just it stuck out 
to me yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think here. that's fair. Yeah. That's definitely fair. Let's talk about the adaptations because we do have two of them. The first is Peter Ustinov's second foray as Hercules Parrot, sir. Poirot, mademoiselle. Fuckery your lips as though about to bestow a kiss. The first being Death on the Nile, of course, and while it's not quite as star-studded, it doesn't do too badly on that front, but I think what it's most notable for is its tone, because while we had many moments of humor in camp in Death on the Nile, it's taken to another level in this movie. Boy, did they have a lot of fun with this story. Whoa, I had never seen this before, because I was quite honestly shocked by how campy this movie is. Yeah, I mean, they change, it's real campy, and also they change the plot enough that it somehow makes less sense, I think. I, you know, I actually don't agree with that. Here's my quick take on this film. It is crazily campy to the point where obviously the tone has nothing to do with the original novel, but they are so consistent with it and they go so hard with it that I appreciated it, but never at the expense of the puzzle mystery. There's also the stuff with the diamond. They dispense with the heroin subplot, at least, and right. they they make it more of a jewel theft or, like, insurance fraud yeah. subplot. And that's what Sir Horace, and now he's Sir Horace in, in the film, too. Like, that's what he's involved in. I don't know. I mean, it's just as goofy, but it's actually at least woven into the plot a bit more than the heroin subplot was in no, the I original. No, I suppose that's true. I thought it was really interesting for a movie that came out in 1982 that Miss Brewster's character was changed to Rex Brewster, who is this catty journalist who is just 100% gay. He's a gay man. Sir Horace even refers to the place being full of Nancys. One of those exclusive la-di-da hotels where the knobs and nancies come to squawk at each other. I can't stand it myself. And then Maggie Smith, who plays a mashup of the proprietress in the Jolly Roger in the original novel and Rosamond Darnley. She's essentially Rosamond if Rosamond were running the Jolly Roger. She's a very likable character, but she goes through a whole bunch of different theories as to who could have done it. And when she's theorizing that Rex Brewster could have done it, she says, Look, I was wrong about Cherche La Femme. Sorry about that, but it's quite obviously Cherche La Fruit. (laughs) It's like, wow, okay. Dear. I mean, Maggie Smith is having a lot of fun. What are the holidays for? If you can't do a spot of flirting and get a bit pissy boots. Her costuming was interesting. Her hair looked like Lucille Balls, super frizzy and red. She's wearing really gaudy plastic jewelry the whole time and super gaudy clothing. She's having a lot of fun. Arlene and I were in the chorus of a show together. Not that I could ever compete. Even in those days, she could always throw her legs up in the air higher than any of us (laughs) and wider. But you know who's having even more fun than she is? Diana Rigg as Arlena Marshall. Yours the You're the Coliseum is she camping it up? She's like prat falling almost from the second that you meet her. Also, I'm not hallucinating this, right? Isn't Jane Birkin also in Death on the Nile? Yeah, so Jane Birkin plays Christine Redfern here, and she played Louise, the maid, in Death on the Nile. Right, and she, right. she does that that's another fun and very campy element in this movie, which I've never seen before, is that Christine Redfern, as played by Jane Birkin, gets 
essentially a murderer's makeover because there's this whole, you know, notion that Christine has been pretending to be pale and mousy and unathletic. And then at the end, when Poirot calls them out for being the murderers, they basically admit to doing it, but they say, you have no proof. So ha ha ha, we're going to go get dressed now and then leave and get away with it. And she gets dressed in this fabulous getup and looks amazing. And everyone is like, whoa, rather than ripping the mask off and the murderer is psychotic, it's like she just looks fabulous. It's just so ridiculous. Just Jane Birkin, like the face I of know. like, <laughs> cool. And she really does look great. And the, and the only other thing I want to mention is that I, a lot of people think of this movie for there's a sequence in which Poirot, as played by Ustinov, pretends to swim where he's like, oh, I'm going to go swimming. And he does these strokes out of the water. And it's very funny. It's very not Poirot, but it's very Peter Ustinov. And it's kind of a perfect encapsulation of this film. There's a lot going on in this movie. I actually recommend it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Like, I want to be clear on this. I totally enjoyed myself watching this movie. I'm not sure that I think it's a good movie. No, it's ridiculous, but ridiculous in a lot of the best ways. And not a typical Agatha Christie adaptation. Anyway, (laughs) switching gears a little bit, and I at least don't have much to say about the Suchet adaptation because this is actually one that I didn't love all that much. And Suchet himself, in his book, pretty much indicates the same. He felt that this was the point at which the series was treading water a bit. Yeah, It's just really subdued. I mean, the setting is gorgeous because it is the actual Berg Island, and you can see them going in on this old-fashioned contraption that, like, brings them through the tidal water, which is pretty cool. It just feels a little flat. I did like that they gender-swapped Linda. He's a son now, and he was played by Russell Tovey, like a really young Russell Tovey, and very, very angsty and miserable. And and it's a very faithful adaptation, much more faithful, certainly, than the Ustinov. The 1982 one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that... (laughs) I don't think there's a deep dive into that episode. It is weird that they decided to bookend it with Poirot going to a restaurant that Hastings has opened. He opens an Argentinian restaurant because he's like back in London trying to now be a restaurateur. We end up finding out that Poirot got food poisoning at Hastings' restaurant, which is funny, but it has nothing to do with anything. And in an episode that's adapting a novel, it's just odd to me that they spend as much time on it as they do. But anyway, I guess as we noted, it is a pretty simple, straightforward novel. So I suppose they felt they had the time. So that's probably a good segue into our rankings. Let's talk about plot mechanics. Catherine Brobeck. We've already said this at length. It's a neat little bag of Christie tricks that'll work. We've seen almost every single thing here before, but it's really clean. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the mechanics of this, although I think that the book itself ends up being padded out with a lot of filler. Yeah. And I think that the second that you see what the mechanics are, it's kind of all over. It's very obvious. Yeah. I think it's clever and it's pleasing, but when you really start breaking it down, it feels like a retread of a lot of things, even though yeah. it is done well, which is, again, is fine. And she does that all the time where she's expanding on ideas that she played around with in a short story and it is done well. So I wouldn't deduct too many points. I think you actually came out on an eight and I came out on a six. So I would be okay giving plot mechanics a seven. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. And then plot credibility, the fact that everything goes perfectly and they're almost superhuman murderers. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's not not that it doesn't make sense. It's just that it's convenient and it strains credulity a little bit because humans err and these humans don't. 
And I wish that maybe they had a little bit. So I think that for me is a ding on credibility. The only thing that I think raises credibility a little bit for me again is this notion that Arlena Stewart is a different person from who she's presented to be at first. And it's so believable to me who she is. And it's so believable to me that Patrick Redfern and Christine Redfern are who they are too. And the clarity that you get at the end of this where you're like, oh, of course, that's what was actually going on between these three people. It's totally not what it seemed, but it totally makes sense. Yeah. But then we have the other things as to motivations and why are they doing it now? So I, where did you come out on this? I would go with a seven. With a seven. Yeah. I think, I think a seven on this as well. A seven and a seven for mechanics and credibility is really good, but I think deservedly so, even though there are a bunch of other novels that have done better. Yeah. So about series long characters, I mean, we get pretty good Poirot here, I Mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. As recently as in One Two Buckle My Shoe, Poirot established himself as being a leg man. (laughs) And we do get these great conversations in the very beginning where he says, I, I am old of the old school. When I was young, one saw barely the ankle, the glimpse of a foamy petticoat. How alluring, the gentle swelling of the calf, a knee, a beribboned garter. And then when he goes on for his whole old fashioned distaste for sunbathing and he he compares sunbathing bodies to a morgue in Paris and bodies arranged on a slab lab like butcher's meat what's brilliant about that is it's true to poirot's character and it's kind of a clue because that's that's how it was easy for christine to impersonate arlena marshall because bodies just look like bodies on a beach i love that we even got a little poirot hastings interaction even though hastings isn't in the novel it's really it was really weird though was were you not a little bit taken aback by that I was totally taken aback by it because obviously Poirot is not narrating this novel. This is a third person narrator. So just all of a sudden, you know, the narrator says, besides, as he explained to his friend Hastings at a later date. And so it's like, we just know that Poirot and Hastings were talking about this case later. I honestly like the fact that we know they keep in touch. Aww. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I came out with a seven on Poirot. I came out on a six. I can give you a seven, though. The only other thing I wanted to mention is that we do have a moment in this book where Poirot spreads his handkerchief on a seat to sit down. And there's this whole extended sequence in David Suchet's book where in the filming of the very first episode that he did, The Adventure of the Clapham Cook, he did exactly that. He put a handkerchief down on a park bench before he's going to sit on it. And apparently the director and all the producers of the series freaked out. Because they were like, that's ridiculous. He wouldn't do that. And Suchet was like, no, no, no. I know Poirot and he would do this. <laughs> like this is, he was so detail oriented because he had read every single book and short story featuring that. Poirot. It ended up getting cut out of that episode, but he definitely does it multiple times within the series. Because I've seen, yeah, I, I of course can he does. picture yeah. him doing it. So I like that we got that. So seven on Poirot. It's definitely a good Poirot novel. And then book specific characters, I think we both agree, is where this one feels a little off a little off a little weak Arlena is probably the best character even though she's sketchily drawn but that still doesn't make this category sing for me quite honestly even Patrick and Christine it's more that once we know the dynamics between them the dynamics are well drawn and believable but they as characters don't come to life as much as Jackie and Simon do in Death on the Nile right no of course all and then all the other characters Rosamund Darnley I guess is pretty good since Poirot is so obsessed with her. We see a lot of her. And we get a lot of Linda. (laughs) We get, this is going to sound really awful, but the way that Christy wrote from Linda's point of view reminded me a little bit of when she was writing from the dog's point of view. (laughs) 
some witness. Oh, no. Like, it just, it didn't feel totally authentic somehow. No, it, no, it really didn't feel authentic at all. It felt like an older person trying to inhabit the psyche of a teenager and getting it wrong. Yeah, I think that that's valid. <laughs> no, I think it's valid. I think that, I, poor Linda. <laughs> poor Linda. So I think, are we on a five for that one? Yeah. For book-specific characters? Yeah. Okay. Not huge fans there. Yeah. And then setting in tone, I wanted it to be better. I think I probably would come out a little higher than you, although after having this discussion, I think I probably agree with you. The setting is good because we know the setting comes from a real place. And I think there are a couple of descriptive passages. We see people sitting on turf on a cliff overlooking a cove. Mm -hmm. And like there's a specificity to the geography, which is very important to the logistics of the murder plot that shows it's a real place and she had a real geography in mind. But it perhaps doesn't come to life in that kind of ineffably magical way that settings sometimes do, even in Christie novels. Is that fair? No, I completely agree. So that's not good. Otherwise, though, it's a fairly breezy read. It's just that the padding gets noticeable. Oh, it's really noticeable. It's not tedious. I mean, there are Christie novels that feel more tedious, much more tedious than this. You know, I don't know if it's because I remembered immediately what the solution was, Mm -hmm. but I found myself getting a little irritated reading it. Yeah. And that's not to say that it's not like a breezy read, but the elements that would have engaged me were somehow not particularly there. It's funny because we often talk about how Christie has a tendency to overstuff these novels where the puzzle mystery is complicated and then she has two, if not three, if not four side plots that are quite complex and take up, you know, a lot of space and provide confusion. Right. And it's like here we actually have a simple streamlined puzzle mystery and we have one or two side plots, but they're not that complex and they don't really add that much confusion, which is why they're pretty obvious as padding the drug business and Linda with the voodoo and you know we never believe any of those side plots as actually having anything to do with it so it does make for a little bit of a deflated read but not again not that it was hard to get no no it's just that it like I didn't engage with it particularly that's fair. The only thing I wanted to mention in terms of the setting also just in in its time, on a closer reading of these Christies, I'm struck by how often she references real life murders. And there's a reference to the murder trial of Wallace here, which is William Herbert Wallace, his very famous and still to this day unsolved murder mystery of this man who is thought to have murdered his wife. And it happened in 1931. And it's just even though this was coming out 10 years later, it's something that it's a reference every everyone would have known. It would be like referencing O.J. Simpson. And I just think it's interesting how often we get these sort of real life analogs in the stories, which are very throwaway references. And they get, they they tend to be lost on us because they haven't stood the test of time several decades, if not a century forward. But it just would have affected the read and made for a slightly different read back then. So I just think it's interesting to note that. So we'll do a seven then for setting and tone. And then, yeah, we had agreed on one deduction for Stuck in Its Time, right? Right. For, um... Mm -hmm. A little bit yep. of distasteful ending. That brings us to a grand total of seven plus seven plus seven plus five plus seven minus one. 32 points, putting Evil Under the Sun in a tie with Appointment with Death and Three Act Tragedy. 
It seems totally right. Yeah, it seems very right. We both agree that it should go under appointment with death and just above three-act tragedy, and that puts it in 11th place out of 29 novels. Well, that is Evil Under the Sun. Join us next week for a change of pace. We are revisiting with our friend Mr. Harley Quinn in The Soul of the Croupier in the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection. We would love to hear from you, especially if you have thoughts on Evil Under the Sun. Let us know. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha and our Instagram handle is All About Agatha. And we would really appreciate if you would take a moment to rate and review us wherever you are listening to this podcast and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.